I want black men to claim their humanity back. <laughs> yes, yeah. period. Period. And so really working with fathers and sons around and really black parents, um, mothers as well, around like, how do we socialize our young men around manhood and masculinity in a way that's healthy for them um, and, and, and strengthen the relationship between father, particularly father and son. Welcome to the Egg Gap Evolution Podcast. I'm your host, Mariah Phillips. You can call me Mariah because that's my name. And I'm thrilled to have you on this journey with me and all of the spectacular guests who jump on the podcast to give you more options for educating children so that children have more options for building a magnificent future. The Egg Gap Evolution Podcast is a digital community where parents, educators, and innovators drop the details on how they are using their lives to help children explore the vastness of education beyond the textbook so that we can close America's education gap together. And just in case you didn't get the memo, producing a podcast is a whole lot of work. We're talking schedule coordination, production, the list goes on and on. So in return for bringing you this show every week, we just ask that you always find a way to share and use what you learn on the podcast to enrich children and families everywhere. Alrighty, without further ado, come along with me to meet our very next guest. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Rabiatu Berry. Dr. Berry is an assistant professor in the Family Science Department at the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland College Park. She received her doctorate in counseling um, psychology from Loyola University of Chicago, and she is a community-based intervention and prevention specialist whose work aims to reduce negative mental health outcomes among Black boys and to develop family and community outbased interventions that support healthy development. Um, Dr. Barry is does so many great things with families and with youth in her studies, and this really just scratches the surface of the deep work that Dr. Barry is doing. And we're so grateful to have you here on the show with us, Dr. Barry. How are you? I'm good. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Very much looking forward to jumping into this conversation. So, um, for <clears throat> listeners who may not know, so I know I just read your bio. Um, so for folks who aren't familiar with the mental health profession, mm-hmm. um, or maybe familiar, but just not familiar with the terminology. Why do we need community-based intervention and prevention scientists like yourself and society? Like, what do you guys do? So community-based researchers and prevention scientists, it, it's lots of different languages, basically just a community-based researcher. Um, you know, research in the ivory tower, like universities have a, a poor history of really taking from communities and going into communities and telling communities what we think that they need um, and writing about communities to one another, but like not including the communities, not coming up with um, solutions to the things, more so just kind of talking about communities. And so the shift to doing community-based intervention and prevention work is recognizing and honoring that the community has solutions to their own problems um, and that um, nobody knows better than the people closest to the phenomenon what it's going to take to do to deal with it and actually knows what's needed. And so the point of community-based work is partnering with communities um, to bring the expertise that we have around science and methodology and collaborating with communities to do needs assessment. So the community, you know, um, recruiting community members to be part of the scientific process and partnering with as like equal peers um, to find solutions to um, concerns in the community. 
that includes and, and centers the community rather than centers scientists and their agenda, which is kind of previously how research has, has really been done, um, which is why a lot of communities don't trust scientists and they don't trust researchers is because we don't have a good history in the way we interact. So this trend and move towards community-based work and intervention and prevention is really about centering communities um, and community members and making them collaborative partners in doing the work and finding solutions for communities rather than us thinking we know what communities need. Right now I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm from Baltimore. You're from Chicago, right? Well, I moved here from Chicago. I'm from Florida, but I was in Chicago okay. for a few years. So yeah. You were in Chicago for a few years and um in, in cities, you know, certain areas and cities like this and in Chicago um, it is very popular. You, see, you even see it today. A lot of times folks, you know, whether they're coming to help or whatever the initiative is, can a lot of times um, try and tell the community what the community needs. And I mean, personally, I've noticed that sometimes that causes friction and mm-hmm. rightfully so, because, you know, to help somebody, you really got to know them. So basically you're saying what your practice is, what the, t- the type of science that you do is saying, hey, we're not going to come in and tell you what you need. We kind of, we have a good idea that you do need something, you know, you need help in some way. And we're going to work alongside you and find out exactly what your life is like, what's going on in your community, and then kind of partner with you to come up with solutions. Come up with solutions and have them be implementers of those solutions. So it's, 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 multi-stepped, um, but community is part of all the steps, including up into implementation and dissemination of whatever the thing is, so that the community can take ownership over the thing. Um, the goal is for not for not for me to be there for <clears throat> forever, but for me to help the community um, come with their own solutions and then can maintain and sustain on their own, um, separate and apart from the researcher. Um, so the goal is uh, sustainability and independence um, in a way. Yeah. So what inspired you to pursue a career in the mental health field? I know right now there I've heard from so many people that there's a mental health shortage. And based on my, I will, will say shallow knowledge of the field, um, it's not easy work in my opinion. So what inspired you to pursue a career in mental health? Um, I mean, I've always I've always liked children, even when I was a child. Um, I was the kid who used to pick up other kids and maybe like put them down. Y'all are the same. Um, (laughs) um, and just knowing that like I had a lot of peers who struggled with a lot of things. And as I got older, um, in particular, my male friends, and I was always very fascinated with the, um, the kind of duality that I felt like a lot of them lived in and the way that they kind of functioned in the world. And I was always very curious about that. Uh, and I think that as a community, I've always felt like um, the way that we express feelings aren't valued in 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 the world. And I think we have this kind of bad rep that Black people, people of African descent, don't do feelings. And that's not necessarily true. We just don't do feelings like Black people do feelings. Um, yeah, and so basically. Like when, we, when we think about mental health and psychology, we just weren't represented. Um, and I wanted to think about and work with my own people around like, how do we deal with the many stressors that we have um, and particularly engaging with a space that doesn't see us. And so we're not engaging it either. Um, and so I just felt like that was just a good place for me to use my gifts. Um, and so there I went. Do you remember, I mean, um, it may have been a while ago, but do you remember maybe as like a kid or a teenager, like a situation where that kind of like woke you up and you're like, oh, wow, you know, 
we feelings are handled differently in our community or I see something and now I feel, you know, it kind of changed, it kind of woke you up to like this mental health and feelings is a thing I need to focus on. No, I was always wanted to be an MD actually. Okay. Um, and I actually got a job as a substance abuse counselor after undergrad when I had no idea what I was going to do with myself. Mm-hmm. And I met a lot of women who were in prison who a lot of their issues around like their childhood showed up in their adulthood and now they were moms and they had kids at home and in my sessions and time with them that I was completely unqualified to be doing at the time. <laughs> but um, well, look, you made it. <laughs> look, um, but that's really what pushed me to, to go get my doc, my doctorate because I was like, I don't think I'm doing this right. Um, but yeah. it's just amazing work, but I'm positive I'm doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> so, and I went to grad school and I was in fact doing it incorrectly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> At least you got on the right track. <laughs> right. Um, but, but that's just kind of like evidence of the fact that vulnerable communities, right, end up seeing my bachelor me, like with a bachelor's mm-hmm. degree, who had no business doing therapy. All I was doing was like following a manual that I was given. It was called Strategies for Change. I'll never forget. It's called Strategies for Change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those women needed someone who had skills, not me who had a bachelor's degree three seconds ago. Um, But that's what they were offering women who were in prison, right? And that troubled me. (laughs) I can see why. (laughs) I can see why. I mean, but the good part is you had the experience to then be troubled and to then take this career path, but... Yes, yes. And when I got to grad school, I was like, oh, they ought to be shame. Like, I I had no business. I mean, none. (laughs) Thank you for um, deciding to move forward and then be qualified. And I mean, even the fact that you were there unqualified showed that you cared. But um, you specialize in reducing negative mental health outcomes among black boys. And I remember you said that when you were younger, you kind of of took an interest in like how they um, as male identifying people may have moved through the world versus everybody else. And then being black in addition to that. Um, So I'm wondering you know, now you've worked with so many different families or had so many different um, folks that you've studied. What are some of the most common examples of negative mental health outcomes among Black boys today? Um, I mean, I think <clears throat> our boys um, have a lot of issues with um, depression and anxiety. And the way that they exhibit the depression and anxiety, and when I say depression and anxiety, I mean symptoms, not full blown like a depressive disorder, but having depressive symptomology and having anxiety symptoms. Um, and there's a difference between having symptoms and having like a full blown diagnosis. Okay. Um, and I think we, as a community, we struggle with what do we do with men's feelings? And I think our boys get a lot of what we like to call in psychology externalizing disorders. So disorders that are about external things like aggression and anger and irritation. And we, we focus on their behaviors and not like their actual internal experiences of how they're feeling. Mm. And because of that, their feelings never get addressed. And every, every intervention is around how do we stop the behavior, stop the behavior, stop the behavior when their behaviors are just expressions of their internal experiences that no one is willing to touch. Um, and they don't know what to do with because no one taught them how to touch their own. <laughs> right. So um, I find that the most difficult part of working with young men is getting them to identify their feelings, like just identifying it beyond 
being happy, mad, sad is about as far as it can go. They don't do well with like nuance, like I'm irritated or I'm bothered, or like mm. those kind of like in between feelings. It's just like happy, mad, sad, happy, mad, sad. And yeah. Like those aren't your only feelings. And they can't even necessarily always identify how they're feeling. And they definitely can't or have trouble putting it into words. And so if they can't explain how they feel and no one's asking them how they feel and they're not having to practice engaging with their feelings and what to do with them, what we get is all those externalizing behaviors. Um, Got you. That yeah. makes sense. Um, I mean, you could probably write a dissertation on what I'm about to ask, but well, how do you think that we got to this point as far as, you know, black boys really not even knowing how to identify their feelings beyond, you know, happy, mad, sad, or just deal with feelings at all? I mean, it's the way we socialize men, generally speaking, um, around the expressions of feelings, right? We generally don't allow boys to have a full range of feelings. And what we don't understand is that we're really denying their humanity by not allowing them to feel yeah. Not express their feelings because they're going to feel whether we let them do it or not. But what we don't allow is for the expression of it. We, we shut boys down. You know, a little boy falls. They're going to let him cry for about 30 seconds, depending on how the how much the adult determines how much they thought it hurt. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> Somebody else to... telling you how much you hurt. That's right. enough. Get up. Uh, all right. You know, all right. It wasn't that bad. Right. You don't know. You can't feel his knees burning. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> he needs about two more minutes of crying. Right. And so they give you about 30 seconds. They're like, all right, now. So you're okay. And it's like two things can be can be correct at the same time. He can be okay, but he could also still be hurting, right? Yeah. Um, and I've so, never heard somebody put it that way. You can be okay, but also still be hurting. Yeah, his leg isn't going to fall off, but it still burns. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like he's okay and like still hurting at the same time. And so I think the way we socialize men in general around masculinity is restricting those emotions. And then for black boys, it's kind of compounded because in America, black men have to earn masculinity. And so, whereas white men are kind of, are born with it and people grant it to them freely, black men have to earn it. And so even as a child, they start to earn their masculinity. And when you have to earn something rather than just naming it and saying that that's what I am, you do extra things. You work Mm -hmm. extra hard. So if we say that, one means man, you're going to do 2.5 so you can earn, make sure you earn the one. Um, and I find that that's what a lot of that, that's the idea of like hypermasculinity. They're not hypermasculine in the sense that they just want to be extra, whatever we think manhood is, but that we're making them fight for it. Yeah. And when you have to fight for something. You work really, really hard and you want to yeah. make sure that people, other people see it because as much as we like to say, like, only we care about what we think, it's not true. We live in a society with other people and how other people view us influence what we think of ourselves. And so if I keep saying I'm a woman and you keep saying, no, you're not. <laughs> right. And you're treating me as such because you're saying I'm not. I'm going to do everything that I think is womanly to show you that, like, I'm a woman. See, I'm a yeah. woman. See? And so they're literally doing the same thing. That makes sense. So, like, a lot of times I know... um sometimes black men and black boys in particular can get a bad rep for being extra aggressive or, you know, a lot of things. I mean, just get, hop on Twitter and you'll see, uh, you know, a myriad of, um, you know, different sorts of accusations and things like that. And that's not to say necessarily that in some cases, you know, um, like you're saying, trying extra hard to prove a certain level of manhood, if you will. Um, but you're saying that 
because essentially like if you're born into a society that doesn't recognize you for what you identify as and who you are um but you can clearly see somebody who may be the exact same gender as you being respected for that um and the difference really is the color of your skin then that would result in you know maybe somebody going and saying well i need to do something to prove this to you um yeah and they're going to recreate it in their in wherever they are right so we think of men white men you know having agency over their environment you know they're the money makers they you know impose their will on their environment so then what do black men do in smaller urban communities they create their own economy and they become the the the, cha- the top of that food chain right and they control the economy and they impose their own will on the environment because they don't get the opportunity to do that in the larger society so they just do it in a society that they created for themselves <laughs> so they're the CEOs of their companies. They're the the strategizers. They're the this, they're the that. They're the policers. They're all of these things. It's just that when you do it outside the larger society norms, we call that a criminal. But like now they're criminalized for literally doing, yeah. for having their own economy within the larger society, having their own society within the larger society. That is so very true. I um Again, I live in Baltimore and I, I'm from the city. I live in the city now. And I, I see every day exactly what you're saying. And sometimes it's a bit horrifying to see sometimes because you really do see um, the way that if, you know, what's considered criminal activity or what's considered or it's looked down on, on society that black people and black men might be doing is if you go to, um, you know, and this is not a political podcast, but if you look at anything government or like anything on a higher level of society, um, you really see the same patterns and like you said, the same systems and the same things going on. It's just two different levels and it's labeled two different things. Exactly. I mean, like I said, it's not a political podcast, but you know, they voted for Donald Trump because they were like, he's a great businessman. He steals. He's fraud, right? But we call they they call that savvy. Like he's a savvy businessman. Right. Black men do it, they're criminals. Like <laughs> there's really <laughs> nothing more to say. Like right. Right? that's so, what it is. Um, and so I'm, uh, you know, you said about, you know, creating own systems, own economies. Of course, that sort of thing trickles down to the family. Um, You know, most adults choose to have children. Um, And so that includes black men and black women, too. And I'm not a mental health professional, but I would assume that uh, parents or guardians who are raising a child have... um, a big influence on the child's mental well-being or even if they're not intentionally raising the child they may very well be just influencing the child's life because they are in charge of the child um so let's say a child has a negative experience with someone in their life maybe like a hurtful argument um physical pain from a parent spanking or you know um, a playground fight with a classmate is there a difference and if so what's the difference between the way a parent slash child interaction affects a child's mental health versus maybe a teacher or classmates interaction with a child. Is there a difference? Oh yeah. 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 There's a huge difference. Um, most because remember we talk a lot about in the mental health field thing, something called attachment, right? And your attachment, I mean, it's face valid, right? We don't have fancy words that are generally different from English. Like how do you attach to your child and attachment starts at birth and your parent, your caretaker is the one who responds to your needs, right? And so that is who you see as your home base, right? That is the place where you're supposed to feel safe. That's the place where you're supposed to have kind of an archetype or vision of like 
almost like your parent or your caretaker is kind of like a house icon in your brain, right? Mm, that makes sense. Um, so uh, are your are your parents living or your caretakers living? Yes, mine are. Uh, where are they right now? They are in Baltimore. One's in her house and the other one is in the city. Okay. How do you know that? Because I talk to them at quite a few times a week. Right. But in your mind right now, you have a vision of them there. But you yeah. know that they're there. But like in your mind, that is your home base. And so when you think of your parent, your mom, your dad, you think of them in that place because that's where your home base is and your attachment. That's where you learn everything. That's where you're supposed to be able to. That's why kids, you know, be real bad at home and be model children in the world and show out at home because that's the place where you are supposed to be the safest. And so mm. you get your identity really from how the adults it, who take care of you speak into you, treat you, um, and engage with you. So these other things outside of your parents, teachers, classmates, while they can be impactful, it is not even close <laughs> to yeah. how parent-child interactions in fact affect children's mental health. The reality of it is most of the adults that we know who have the most trouble have very tumultuous relationships with somebody, whether it's their mom, dad, somebody who took care of them, did something to them over time that never got addressed. Um, they might talk about how a teacher said something to them that was mean and it stuck with them, but that teacher interaction in absence of a, a, like in, parents who are wonderful does not affect them the same way as parents who are terrible. And even if you have a great teacher that's really wonderful to you, it's not going to make up the difference for like the poor treatment you got from your parent. Okay. Got it. Um, I like what you said about the parent being like an icon in the child's head, because I mean, like I said, um, these, the com this conversation with you, I think is like my first official conversation with like someone who's licensed in the mental health profession. Um, and before that, I, I just didn't understand how, I mean, of course, you know, logically you, you would know that a parent's influence is great on a child but I didn't I, I couldn't really put it into words or like how you described it like why is such an influence on a child like you said a house is your home base and you know you come from your parent and you really look at them as like kind of the model for like I don't know how you should behave and how you should attach to people in the world so that makes sense um that that would inform how you behave <laughs> in society right, but and, I, how you, and how you receive things from others also as well. Right. So mm -hmm. when you have messages from your parents and a tape that you kind of, we call it like a tape, like you play tape in your head around like who your parents say you are and you know, all the things that they've kind of said to you is a tape that you play. And then when you go out into the world and there's something new information that comes in, you really compare it to that tape. Right. And so parents can be such great protective factors for their kids because if they're going into the world hearing all these negative things, but the tape that they hear the most loudly is yours, right? And so whatever you say to them, whatever you put into them is what's going to play there louder than all the things that they hear in the world. Um, it's just, you gotta be really intentional, consistent. And it's really difficult, particularly for black parents because they're trying to navigate their own world as a black person. Mm -hmm. And when you have black children, it's like an extra burden. You're already having to teach them how to be, you know, good humans, like general, regular human beings. And then you have to teach them how to function as black people in the world, right? And this yeah. very delicate balance between telling your kids they can do whatever they want, right? Sky's the limit. But it's kind of not. Like, they kind of can't do whatever they want, right? And at the same yeah. time, you're saying, well, 
When you go here, you got to do this. When you go there, you got to do that, right? And that can be a very difficult thing for kids. And you won't answer a lot of questions. And you have to be very patient um, because it doesn't make sense. And most kids yeah. are the best, the best barometers for things that don't make sense because their brains are so concrete and very logical when they're young. They're going to be like, well, wait a minute now. <laughs> right. Like, you said, and now you're saying, and you're like, okay, true. All right. <laughs> right? <You're trying> to <laughs> figure out, like, how, and nobody will make you feel slower than a child because they ask really good questions. You'd be like, hmm. I know one day my niece is seven, so I don't have children of my own, but I, I, you know, very close with my niece. And I told her, I was like, you don't have to change for anyone. I was like, always stay yourself. And she was like, so I don't have to, she was like, so do I, you know, do I change at all? If I don't have to change to be liked by anybody, do I have to change at all? What about me growing up? And I was like, exactly. oh, <laughs> See, <now you're> <laughs> got you. go play, go play with your dolls. Right. <laughs> Oh, I hear your mommy calling you. Right. Uh, <laughs> mommy just pulled up. Go outside. Right. So it is a, it's a difficult, it's a delicate balance for Black parents for sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. And especially if you, uh, like you were saying before, if, if a parent, you know, a father figure, a mother is already having to go extra lengths to, to prove their humanity to the to society at large, you know, that's then you, I would assume that, you know, some of that stress if not careful is, can be, um, I don't want to say offloaded on the kids, but the kids can be influenced by it. At least I have definitely had seen that in my experience growing up. Um, and for a long time, it didn't make sense, but you know, the older you get, and if you care to, to learn why things are the way they are, it, it does make sense. Yeah. I mean, they're present, right? They live there and you can't expect the parents to not talk. Right. So when the parents come home and they're talking to each other, about their day or things that happen, like the children can hear you. Right. <laughs> right. And so we can't expect the parents to not be able to go home to their safe place. Right. So like it's the lot that goes on um, in a black household that is such extra labor that no one really talks about. Um, yeah, it definitely is. Even, even explaining racism to children. I know again, with my niece um, at some point we talked about slavery and it was a difficult thing to describe and I will say it was difficult to talk about because while I was describing it, I didn't want her to internalize the things that I was telling her. And so even stuff like that, you know, I'm like, yes, this is the case. You know, this is some of our history. However, you know, and then sp- explaining how like, but that's not you right now. It's just a lot, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's a lot. <laughs> I really it's can't put it into, exactly. into more words than that. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And so when we think about, you know, your listeners and thinking about advocacy for education, you know, some of the the proponents of, you know, removing these things from the literature is because they don't want their kids to be exposed to it. It's like, well, our kids been exposed to it. So, yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing that's very important to remember is, um, you know, because even doing this series, um, you know, the what you're hearing now from Dr. Barry is, of course, a part of the um, suicide awareness and prevention for black youth and families. And um, it creating this series was or I won't say a risk in a negative way, but I can definitely tell you I got some um, some very uncomfortable interactions because we were simply focusing on um, black youth. And a lot of times, like you said, if we're talking about um, slavery and race relations and things like that being taught in schools, people will say, well, you know, that's too, my child's too young. I don't want them to have to think about that. If you're not, if you're not black or African-American, um, some folks might say that, but at the but like we're talking about here, um, that's, 
that's day one for black children and babies. You know, that's day one. There's not, there's really not going to be a time in American history anytime soon where there's a black child born and they don't learn about the fact that slavery existed, that racism is going to affect their lives for a very long time. Yep. Um, and so when it comes to physical health, like it's common knowledge that like eating fruit and veggies, exercising, getting enough sleep, can help keep a person in good health and generally good health. Of course, there are other factors, but we all know these are the things we can rely on. Um, What are some practices maybe that parents can keep in mind when relating to their child if they want to help their child achieve or maintain a positive state of mental health? We were just talking about, you know, dad comes home, work was hell. Um, Mom had a what we call nowadays a Karen interaction at the grocery store. Mm And now, you know, it's happening in the house, (laughs) but you want to help keep your child maybe in a, in a positive enough state of mental health. Is it possible to like to keep your child in a positive state of mental health? Is that not a parent's responsibility? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I think one think about development. A lot of times you have a misconception, like colloquially in the world, that identity development starts in adolescence. Everyone's like, well, that's, you know, they're learning who they are and, blah, 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 blah. That's actually not when identity development starts. Identity development really starts around like seven. If you ask a, a school-age child, a middle a middle school-age child, like who's seven or eight or nine, who they are, they'll start telling you things that they're good at. I'm good at soccer. I'm good at this. I'm good at that. I'm not so good at this. I'm not so good at that, right? And that's really what they tell you to determine who they are. And so it's really in the ages between five and 12, that they need a lot, I mean, a lot of like affirmation, a lot of, that's why, you know, everyone, you make these jokes and memes around, kids will be like, oh, look at me. And then you look and they just like spin around in a circle and you're like, <laughs> I'm going to have me over here for you to watch you spin around in a circle. Right. right. But they need you to be like, oh, that's the best circle I've ever seen in my life. Right. They, yeah. Like they crave that because that's how they start to decide if they're good or bad. They really think in those very um, oh, okay. and white terms. And so you really want to have set aside time. And I know it's so hard in the world we live in. People are working so hard to put food on the table and make sure their kids are taken care of. But set aside time, whether it's in the morning, it's part of your morning regimen or like at dinner time, something where your child gets to just tell you about themselves. Like what like and they can ask you anything they want to ask. They can tell you anything they want to tell and give them a space to like think out loud and ask questions and tell you when they didn't like something and what went well today, what didn't go so well, like, well, what do you think we should do in the future? Like having that time to really sit down with them and help them practice thinking through things out loud. Um, They're like, you know, Kimmy made me really mad at school today. Why did she make you mad? What did she do? Right. And then you can like help them problem solve in a way that's outside of the, the situation. Right. You can do positive affirmations with them. Um, I really encourage Black parents to spend four times as much time telling your children about all the great things about being Black to the one time you tell them about things that are not, right? Don't Mm. be reactionary in the socialization of your kids, right? Don't talk to them when they stuck in the house during COVID and it's George Floyd. Now you got to explain to them why he's, you know, like what's happening, right? Be proactive about talking to them about the good things about being Black, the joy in Blackness. 
um, the joy in your own family. Black history is not just Martin Luther King. You have black history in your own family. Tell them how you guys came to live in Baltimore. Like, where did your grandparents come from? How did they get there? What, you know, like everyone has history in their family that's worth sharing. Um, and you want to be proactive about sharing that with your kids so that they have a positive sense of self and they can maintain that even when you're not present. But that takes time. You can't wait till they're 16. And now you're like trying to like help them get a positive identity because their identity development started years, years before that. And so you want to be proactive and not reactionary. What um, about, um, I'm not sure if this covers your field of study. What about foster children? Like if we have folks on here who are foster parents and we might not necessarily know the back history of the biological family, is there a way is, is it possible for um, foster parents to give kids that sort of history and encouragement too, maybe in a different way? Yeah. I mean, then it could just be more general about black people, right? Um, people don't like to engage kids in fantasy, but it's actually not a bad thing, right? You could ask them like, well, what do you think your birth family was like? What do you want them to be like? Right. And they mm. can just come up with this whole story about like who they are and it doesn't hurt them, right? For yeah. them to be able to say what they think. Because they're having the thoughts anyway, whether they share them or not, right? They have fantasies about who they think their biological parent was, who their biological grandparents were. They have fantasies about it. So just ask them so they can tell you, you can help them talk through it. You know, don't confirm or deny. Like that could be true. Like, what does that mean to you if it is true? And then they'll tell you. It's like, you know, and really it's just about engaging kids and allowing them to think out loud and helping them problem solve and come to answers to some resolution on their own. Right. Um, and they're, they're, they move fast. Right. So you, they might be talking about something and it's the adult who's like really anxious about it. Literally in three seconds after you're done, they have moved on. Yeah. <laughs> to the next thing. Right. And so you already have a hot palpitations and they're done. <laughs> they have a question. They asked it, you answered it and they've moved on to the next thing. Right. right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> over there about to pass out. Right. Uh, <laughs> what is this going to end? They've already moved on. Right. So just answer their question. And it, and it's okay to tell kids you don't know, right? Because it's modeling. If they ask you something and you're like, hmm, mom's not, or auntie's not ready to answer that question. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I tell you what, I'll think about it and I'll we, we could talk about it tomorrow. Right. But you have to remember, because you know, these jokers don't forget. Right. <laughs> So, girl, <laughs> yes, and they, yes, they even be testing you, you know, they right. test you because like, they're going to bring it back up. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Um, right. <laughs> so, thank you for that advice. Um, that's something that I don't hear talked about often. So as far as, you know, not, not confirming or denying, letting, letting the kid have letting the imagination run wild, because we know as adults, our imaginations still run wild. So exactly. if, if we're imagining, might as well, you know, encourage it to be something that came from them and encourage it to be positive. Um, and so when it comes to youth mental health, um, gender, what a child identifies as, um, it can really play a huge role in how they think about themselves in the world, like you've been saying. And you work with Black fathers and sons on topics related to gendered racial socialization, gendered racial socialization and gender norm beliefs. So for those of us who aren't familiar with that term or those terms, what is gender racial socialization and gender norm beliefs? So gender racial socialization is basically this idea that, you know, you are not only your gender and you're not only your race, but you're both things. 
Um, and socialization just means how we teach you to do something. So you're socialized around lots of things. You're socialized around how to behave in school. You're socialized around, you know, proper behavior on public transportation, right? Socialization is just kind of like how society shapes you or teaches you to be whatever in whatever space. Mm-hmm. So generational socialization is basically how we teach you about being a black boy who will become a black man. And so, and it happens for girls. So generational socialization is how we teach black girls to be black girls and black women. Um, and so that's basically all it is. It's the idea that you're not just a man, you're not just black, but you're a black man, a black boy. And we're going to teach you what that means and what we think it should look like. And okay. then the gender norm beliefs are just kind of like what we believe as a society is normal for that gender. Like, what do we expect from that particular gender? How should they dress? How should they behave? Et cetera. Okay. Yeah. Um, so does that teaching that. come from, or we were talking about when you say we're going to teach you what that looks like, are we talking about society as a whole, just family, everybody? It's everybody, right? So it happens at different levels, right? It happens at home. It happens in media. It happens. So like there are like a bunch of concentric, cir- concentric circles, right? But as a society, we have a general agreement about what we think thing- people should be like, right? In the United States, we associate things like dresses and earrings and nails that are painted with women. Um, and we associate pants and, and basketball and short nails um, with, and no jewelry, maybe a necklace, with men. When we think about like how you should present in the world, right? Um, and then we also have things around how we think you should behave and the way you should speak and all those kinds of things. Um, and those come from different places. Um, but the socialization in this case is speaking specifically about how your, your parents, your caretaker, your family, your kinship network teaches you about those things. So when we hear the, the, like racial socialization or gender racial socialization, that, that phrase is specifically talking about how your kinship network teaches you about that thing. Okay. Got you. Kinship network is basically your kin. So whether that's fictive kins, whether it's play cousins, play aunties, your actual aunties, all of them is your kin, your kinship network. Um, teaches okay. you about that makes sense. Um, does your work, so the work that you do, um, does that include like just understanding how that works? Does it include or does it go further than that? Um, yeah. so okay. Includes, you know, understanding what do black fathers teach their sons about black masculinity? Mm-hmm. how what it looks like what are the important pillars of it um and what do the sons receive from the fathers on those topics and kind of like does it match what's the framework okay. and how we how black fathers teach their sons about masculinity and manhood okay um, and the, the point of that work is really to develop intervention and programming to help um kind of like allow young men who become adult black men shape and define their own versions of masculinity. Um, and that basically the goal at the end of the day that I want for young, for black boys and men is that I'm a man because I say I am full stop. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to, like there was, I'm a man because I say, and if I want to wear ripped up jeans, I want to ripped up jeans. It doesn't change the fact that I'm a man. Um, if I sleep with other men, I'm still a man if I say so. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that like gender, sexuality, these other kinds of things aren't the things that determine manhood. Right. Um, because 
gender is a part of our humanity. However, we identify as part of our humanity and to take that away from someone, to police someone around like how they're able to be that way mm-hmm. and that the outside world determines whether or not you are that thing is dehumanizing. Yeah. And so I want black men to claim their humanity back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Period. Period. And so really working with fathers and sons around and really black parents, um, mothers as well around like, how do we socialize our young men around manhood and masculinity in a way that's healthy for them um, and, and, and strengthen the relationship between father, particularly father and son. Is there a way, so how, it, you know, let's say somebody's listening to this and they just, I mean, because there, I could ask a thousand follow-up questions because this is just such an interesting topic of what you do. If, do you have talks anywhere that people can listen to online if they want to hear more about, um, this topic or what you do or is there anything people can read oh there i mean um so gender it's interesting because gender racial socialization for boys is not as like robust in the literature as it is for girls and that's because um black women this idea that black women have two marginalized identities they're women and they're black and so there's a lot more kind of research around what it means to be black and woman at the same time Okay. Um, there's a lot more coming out around like how we social, like socialization around black boys. Um, and there was some in the past, not saying there never was any, it's just not as much, um, as, as the girls. And so, um, I have colleagues who do have media things. So I have Rihanna Anderson does a mental health mint. It's on YouTube. It's not specifically about boys. It's generally about racial socialization, Mm-hmm. Um, but they're little like five minute videos about talking to your kids about race okay. and, rac- and racism. Okay. Um, awesome. Well, yeah. definitely. Um, I'll look her stuff up and I'll link it um, in case folks want to check it out. Um, because I mean, this is just, nobody talks about this, <laughs> not, you know, not in everyday society. Um, and I think it's really helpful for folks uh, to just learn more about socialization and related to race and gender. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is black parents do it. They've been doing it. It's just that um, we, you know, and this is what I say, like community-based work, right. Partnering with partnering with universities and things like that is that we have language for the things that people are already experiencing. Mm-hmm. Right. And it really is meaningful and powerful when you can name something. Yeah. Right? Like you're doing a thing, but when it doesn't have a name, it almost isn't real. Right. Yeah. So what we provide is to be able to put names to things that community people are already doing. Right. Yeah. How do we formalize and make it a mechanism and a process of the thing that's already happening, but so it can be systemic in a way that everybody can get, can have access to it. Right. And that, community members who are all neighbors, maybe this house does it really, really well. This house doesn't do it so well, but y'all live next door to each other. How can y'all teach each other? How can this person who's whatever, teach them about the thing? And now we have a name for it. So you can talk about it in a way that everybody understands the language. Yes. Yes. That makes total sense. And speaking of having a name for things and, you know, talking about feelings and talking about what's happening in life. um, You know, we know that it's true that America has a history of medical racism and, you know, that uh, medical racism has influenced mistrust between many black people in the medical industry. It's also true that there are plenty of non-black doctors who are ethical and qualified to treat patients, you know, from any background. Um, And that includes mental health professionals, therapists, psychiatrists. So regardless, some folks may still be hesitant to receive mental health services 
from someone who doesn't share their race. So they might say, hey, listen, I'm black. I buy black. I go to black doctors. I want my child to go to a black mental health professional, period. But the reality is, if you need um, mental health services, especially, you know, in dire times, you need to go get help. Um, So what are some green flags that listeners can maybe um, look out for or questions we can ask a therapist when deciding whether they're a good match for ourselves or our children, even if they do not share the same race as us? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Um. If you have, if they have a website, right? Who's on the website, right? Do they proactively talk about um, the diverse, the diverse populations that they've worked with explicitly? When you talk to them, do they name and mention the fact um, that there is difference and talk to you about it? Because a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll avoid it, but we all see it. We all hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see you. You're white. You can see me. I'm black. Right. <laughs> talk about this. There's no reason to keep it a secret. It's glaring. We're all here. right. That's the one uh, thing none of us can hide is the way the color of our skin. Nobody's not seeing this. Right. right. Um. And so, you want someone who's proactive in talking about it. That's a huge green flag, right? And asking you because they might what they might say to you is after you talk to them about your things and like you know I really prefer a black therapist. Blah 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 blah. And after you guys talk. They might say to you, you know what, I have a colleague that I can refer you to, right? If they feel mm-hmm. like maybe what you need, they really can't give you, but sometimes they might be able to. But a, a clinician, a non-Black clinician who's open and humble and has a culture of humility to say, let's talk about this difference before we go any further and then see, like, I feel like I can help you. And if not, I will refer you to someone who can. Um, and asking questions. Even if they don't say explicitly, ask them, have they worked with black clients before? What were the outcomes? How do they know? Because they might be like, oh, it was great. How do you know? Like, what were your indicators that it went well? Um, what's mm, the longest they've ever had a, a black patient in therapy? What's the longest therapeutic relationship they've had? Because that's a good indicator, right? If you've had 50 black patients, but the longest time you've had a therapeutic relationship with them is two months, they didn't like, all 50 of them didn't like you. And there's a reason for that. Right. <laughs> it's not that all 50 of them didn't want help. <laughs> right. Something was amiss. Right? There's something else there that we need yeah. to talk about. One thing's not right. Um, and so you, you want to ask those kinds of questions. How do they deal with Black issues? How do they incorporate Black issues with their therapeutic um, intervention? Because they'll tell you what their theoretical orientation is. I use CBT. I use psychodynamic. This is how I approach therapy. Okay, well, how do you integrate culture and, and, and into that? They should have an answer for that um, okay. because the, the theories are, are a racial and they're a cultural. That's the culture and race weren't part of the equation when they were coming up with those theories. So they need to be able to know how to do that. And if they don't, that's a, a, a red flag. And I also want us to caution us against assuming that black providers are good because that's not mm-hmm. also the case. And you can absolutely fire a black provider and find another one. Like if you have a black provider and you don't think it's working out, you don't have to stay with them because they're black and you're scared you'll never find another one. You will. <laughs> <laughs> right? There um, are more. <laughs> there are more of us. Um, and don't pass up a non-black provider just because they're non-black. Ask those questions. Um, really kind of do the vetting. Like you would if you were, if someone diagnosed you with, with cancer, you'd get a second and third opinion because you want to have the best one. Mental health is no different. Yeah, You might not get a good one the, right out the gate. And it's not because white therapists are bad, but that one just isn't good. Yeah. 
somebody yeah. else might be. Right. And so, you know, we, you know, I tell black people, particularly, you know, you go, you go to a barber or a hairdresser, if they're terrible, you don't never get your haircut again. You don't never not go back to the hairdresser. You just don't go back to them no more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you're not touching my head. <laughs> because our hair is important to us. So I'm not going to not get my hair done. I'm definitely getting my hair done. I'm just not right. coming back to you anymore, but I'm going to do the work to find the person who does my hair the way I like. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Barry. I mean, the wealth of information you shared is just mind blowing. Um, I'm sure all of us listening will be processing it and listening to this episode over and over again. Um, And so I'm just very grateful to have you here. Um, Do you have any final things that you'd like to say before we wrap up the show? Um, That black people are amazing. Um, You black, you black parents, you are doing well. Um, and you're doing the best that you can. But if you think you need to do better, seek those resources out. Um, and don't be afraid to ask for help because we all could use help somewhere. There's just too much going on to think that you can do it all by yourself. Even if you're a partner, the two of you can't do it all by yourselves. Um, you need a village, whether that be your family and friends, plus professionals who can be part of your village to help you live your overall life, not just your parenting life, your overall life at the best optimal functioning that you possibly can. So don't be afraid to to build your village. 